Natalie, what is the future of money? Oh, gosh, that's a really big question. Well, I believe Bitcoin is the future of money. I think we need a reordering of our financial system. I think the way that it's organized right now is a way that benefits the elites at the expense of the working class. And I think that's growing to more and more frustration, people feeling left behind, civil unrest really around the world. And I think that Bitcoin presents an opportunity to create a new base layer of money that's based on scarcity, based on value, based on competition, decentralization. And so that's why I'm in the space. Right. Okay. We need to unpick what you said there because there was a few things. I saw someone recently say, and this interested me, I'd love your thoughts on this, that Bitcoin was a great way to move dumb money to smart money, i.e. move money from people you're saying uh, at the moment in the current system not doing very well. What did you think of that? You know, a way for the rich to get richer and the poor to get poorer. They said that's what Bitcoin was. Yeah, you know, I obviously don't agree with people who say that there's going to be more wealth disparity with Bitcoin just because the early adopters are going to benefit. I think this is a growing technology network that has that S-curve adoption, just like any other technology network. And I think as it continues to get in the hands of more people, it's going to be much more egalitarian than our current system. Because right now, the people that are closest to the money printer, closest to the monetary spigot, they benefit the most. And we sort of have this marriage between the state and money, between power and money. And I think Bitcoin really drives at the heart of that because no one can control it. No one can manipulate it. No one can inflate it. And if we have an economy that's based on what you actually produce and and that encourages savings so that you can accumulate capital to, to create something of, of, um, of value, I think that that's going to be a more fair world to live in, one that you, you know, you could potentially uh, increase your lot in life by much more than you can right now. And I just think it's sad that, especially in the US where I live, my family came here for the American dream and the American dream, that goalpost keeps moving every single year because everything gets more and more expensive. And that's to the benefit of the people at the top and everybody else sort of suffers. It's that saying of, you know, socializing losses and privatizing gains. And I think that Bitcoin could really address some of those issues. We, we just, we really need a hard money, a money that can't be inflated, can't be manipulated at the core, at the base layer of our economy. And that's not what we have right now. So you've, you said at the start, your first answer, a reorder of the financial system. Um, so what does that mean? Well, that means that we need hard money instead of easy money. That means that instead of printing money and going further and further into debt, we should have a form of money that holds politicians accountable, right? So if they can just print money and say that they can hand it out to whoever they want or that money goes into the system in the forms of bonds or it goes to companies in easy loans and they can just buy back their stock, that creates the system that exacerbates and, and exerts social pressure on, on society because people at the top have assets, they benefit, and the people at the bottom are working harder and harder for money that's worth less. So that's what I, I think Bitcoin ultimately addresses. We really need um, money that can't just be inflated at a whim because a politician wants to spend money. Okay, so since the removal of the gold standard, which is what, just over 50 years ago, we're in this fiat currency system. How do we change the momentum of that and reverse what the fiat system is, you know, the continual debasement of money? I mean, that's surely like the biggest job in the world, isn't it? 
For sure. And you know what? If Bitcoin didn't exist, I probably would be a gold bug. Um, and we need to increase financial literacy in general because I think so many people don't even realize that the decoupling uh, from the gold standard is what has led to the debt crisis that we're in right now. It surely has accelerated it. Um, so ultimately, what I believe is that Bitcoin should be accepted by governments, that they should put it on its balance sheet, that it should become the new global reserve currency, and that they have to become more fiscally responsible going forward. If they're going to make promises, they can't just dole out easy money and, you know, create these issues that exist in our society. They need to actually be responsible and they need to allow business to, um, to drive competition and, and produce value. Right now, I think that, you know, everything is becoming politicized. Everything is becoming socialized. The government is taking over all aspects of our lives and our economy. And that's not the way to create prosperity. I just don't believe that. I think we need to return to a more capitalistic system. And so I think the way that we do that is we remove ourselves from this credit debt spiral and we move on to a standard that's similar to gold but now in a digital form and why aren't the government embracing that <laughs> i think it's a couple things i think number one those uh those wheels turn very slowly and i think that a lot of people are uneducated about bitcoin i think there are a lot of efforts that are underway some that i'm a part of to really educate policymakers. you know just because you're elected to office doesn't mean you understand economics just because you anchor a massive news program doesn't mean you understand economics and i can tell you firsthand as someone who has worked a long time in mainstream news a lot of people are very well intentioned and really just don't understand how the economy functions or what money printing is. So I think that is at the heart of probably the biggest problem because I think the people who educate themselves and really understand Bitcoin are not against it. But there are going to be some people who unfortunately are corrupt and they don't want to remove themselves from a position of power and being close to the fiat money printer or the, you know, the monetary river that provides um, you know, a, a cushy situation for some people that they might not want to let go of. Um, but I think those two things lie at the heart of why this hasn't happened yet. But I also think you know, we need to remember that we're only 13 years in. Bitcoin has really proven itself a lot in 13 years. It's the best performing monetary asset uh, of that time. And I think that we have a ways to go if we're going to, you know, create a new form of a global reserve currency. So I don't get too hard on Bitcoin and what it's accomplished in 13 years. I think it's actually a lot. So what do you think the future of Bitcoin is then? I think that adoption is going to continue to grow. I think that we're going to move um, actually into a, a decade. I, I agree with many macro analysts that say we're going to move into a decade of deglobalization. I think that the U.S. dollar as the global reserve currency, um, that position is weakening. And we see that with countries like China and Russia and just different countries in general starting to beef up their reserves with things like gold and, and commodities. So um, I'd be interested to see what happens because I think that we have gone into a system of so much debt and we are so interconnected in the world. And now that we're going into a system of deglobalization, decentralization, something like Bitcoin really has the potential to, to rise in power and value. The, the value proposition exists both in the West, where it's used more as a savings technology, as well as in developing countries where people need it in real time as a medium of exchange to subvert oppressive governments or to, um, to, to get aside from even worse inflation than we have here in the U.S. So I think it's going to grow in adoption. Actually, the statistics show that it's growing faster in adoption than the internet was in the 1990s. So the prediction is that we will have 1 billion Bitcoin users by the year 2025. And again, if you if you know that S curve, the, it, the shift can happen pretty rapidly. And back in the 90s, I think no one could really see the future in terms of the potential and the widespread 
revolution that the internet was in terms of how it would transform businesses, communication. And I see the same thing with Bitcoin as a monetary protocol and as a future savings technology, digital property, and just a medium of exchange eventually. I, I do believe that more and more of us will be buying and selling things in Bitcoin. So right now, do you see it as a medium of exchange or just a store of value? I think that that really depends on where you live. So based on my travels and my discussions with people all over the world with Bitcoin in the West, especially in places like the US where people are used to the concept of saving or the 60-40 portfolio, I think that primarily it's used as a savings technology and people don't want to necessarily spend their sats because they think they're going to be worth much more later on. But in developing nations where inflation is far higher or they have authoritarian governments, they need Bitcoin in real time as a medium of exchange. And so they're able to avoid remittance fees. They're able to transact with one another in local economies. They're able to get value sent to them from anywhere around the world that can't be confiscated or seized. Um, so I think we're going to see the two worlds kind of converging at one point. Uh, and I think it's I think that the countries that you know adopt Bitcoin sooner than others are actually going to benefit a lot from it. So I've coined a little phrase because I don't think I'm as educated as you or um, you know, some other guests I've had on my show who've talked about Bitcoin, some very famous people. But I've done a lot of research into this. And so, for example, if I listen to Michael Saylor, um, I call it Bitcoin geek bias. And that is where people so believe in Bitcoin, they become monomaniacally biased, where they're not very good at arguing the downsides. So are there any downsides to Bitcoin? Because you sound like an evangelist of Bitcoin. But of course, you know. Well, the, the, obvious, the obvious downside is the short-term volatility. You know, Bitcoin doesn't exist in a vacuum. And anyone can acknowledge that it has, has largely been correlated with equities and things like the NASDAQ and the stock indices. So you can't invest in it thinking that this is going to be your get-rich-quick scheme. And that's not what most of us look at Bitcoin as. This is your don't continue to bleed out and get poor slowly but faster and faster, you know, plan. So I think that the downside Side is that we really don't know when Bitcoin will reach its ultimate destiny and it will face battles along the way. And so I, I really urge people to take the time to educate themselves, not just about Bitcoin and understanding the technology network, how mining works, um, so that you can appreciate what was actually invented 13 years ago, but also really understanding the financial system because it is fundamentally broken. Our debt situation is so out of control that they have to continue to print in order to sustain it, in order to be able to monetize and finance the, the different governments around the world. And there is really no um, no life raft. Like if Bitcoin wasn't invented, again, I would I was in a situation before where I was a reporter and I thought, gosh, everything seems to be getting worse every year. Everyone is more and more polarized and frustrated. And how are we ever going to get out of it? And Bitcoin for many of us does represent that that beacon of hope. So, you know, I, I, I do notice that people call us, oh, evangelists or advocates, but it's because once you dig into the financial system and Bitcoin and you see the rate of adoption growth, you kind of think this could actually be that one thing and we need something. We need something to hope for. We need something that will make the situation better. So why be against a piece of technology that's trying to address those very issues that have made life so hard for so many people? So the downside is short-term volatility. What the Fed's going to do, you know, what, what, how low it's going to drop. But I certainly don't believe it's going to zero. 
And I do believe that the ultimate destiny is for it to grow in adoption and be uh, one of the most powerful digital assets in the world. Okay, great. There's lots of questions, but I will focus on the ones I've written so far. (laughs) Um, Warren Buffett said he wouldn't buy all of Bitcoin for $25. Mm -hmm. What do you think about that? You know, it's sad because Warren Buffett's investment strategy, that idea of the long-term hold, don't buy anything unless you'd want to hold it for 10 years, is kind of so core to the the, the Bitcoin um, the Bitcoin principles. But unfortunately, it just tells me that Warren Buffett doesn't understand Bitcoin. And that's really it. I, I, I would love to have a conversation with him and see if he's read something like the Bitcoin Standard or, um, or The Price of Tomorrow by Jeff Booth, read any of the literature that's really available in the space that helps people connect the dots and understand how Bitcoin can affect the, the global financial system. And, and I don't believe that he's done that work. I actually did a live saying I wonder if he's lost his touch because even if you don't believe in Bitcoin, surely you buy it all for $25 and then just sell it for, I don't know, just under a trillion, don't you? Wouldn't you just do that? Yeah, well, and and also a lot of his long-term stock bets, they haven't really budged in a while. So, you know, I think that new blood needs to come in into the investment world as well as the the political world, because um, I think that there there is a lot that older generations can learn from younger generations when it, when it comes to monetary technology. So you said that the main downside of Bitcoin is its volatility, and you thought that there was quite good um, widening it, widening adoption. But do do you not worry for Bitcoin that there's resistance from the global powers that be? and that therefore adoption doesn't happen. You know, I'm not worried about it because it's the, the concept of powers being against Bitcoin is very similar to this to the idea that, you know, governments would try to ban the internet. And I I just the internet is decentralized. The internet has no headquarters, it has no CEO, it has no one controlling it and it just it rose in a democratic way through use and adoption, and it transformed our entire lives. And so how do you stop something like that? Because Bitcoin is essentially the same. It's the internet of money. There's a book out there that's literally called the internet of money. Um, and so I I think that there's going to be initial resistance, again, by people who either benefit from the previous system or don't understand Bitcoin and what it's trying to do or how it actually functions. But that resistance won't be as powerful as the use cases, as the rate of adoption, and as the fact that in just the same way you can't try to control the internet or shut it off or ban it, you won't be able to do that with Bitcoin either. Thank you. (laughs) Now, you mentioned before about Bitcoin in a way not not very easy to manipulate. Well, you, I think you said it's unmanipulatable. But mm-hmm. I would argue if Elon Musk tweeted something about Bitcoin, he could manipulate it. <laughs> so what do you think of now the power with people like Elon Musk to tweet and send, you know, think of Dogecoin and what's happened with that? I don't think we've ever really seen that before, have we? And what do you think about that? So I I think that there's a very big difference in saying that something is manipulated versus increasing volatility of the price because the Bitcoin network literally can't be manipulated. No one can take your Bitcoin from you. No one can seize it, confiscate it. The Bitcoin network has never been hacked in the entire 13 years of its existence. So Bitcoin itself, it's, it's a protocol. It's a consensus mechanism. Bitcoin cannot be manipulated. 
But the price of Bitcoin can maybe be manipulated short term in the in the margins. It can be affected by discussions that are happening or macroeconomic conditions. So again, that goes to that short term volatility. But if you're not looking at this as a trader, if you're in it for the long run, then you can stomach that volatility, especially if you allocate based on your own risk tolerance and what you know you need in the in the short term when it comes to your your finances. So I you know, that question, it's like Bitcoin can't be manipulated, but the price can see upward and downward swings based on what's going on around the world. And I think we'll continue to see that. And can you imagine when, you know, Bitcoin does reach the levels of, you know, 250,000, 300,000 a coin, which I do believe will happen in the next five, 10 years for sure. Imagine a downswing that goes down to 150,000, right? I mean, we're panicking over 60 to 20. Imagine what people will be saying when it's 300 to 150. <laughs> so I want to drill into this Elon Musk effect again. Mm -hmm. and, and, and it's actually not really about Bitcoin, this question. But the SEC are all over Elon. They watch him a lot. And, you know, if you have the power to move markets, is there not now a moral question about using that power? I mean, certainly someone like Elon Musk who can tweet something and move the price of Dogecoin, you know, I, I, obviously, I obviously would hope that he has some, uh, some ethics in mind before he makes statements on social media. But look, this is a, it's sort of a free market world when it comes to expressing yourself on these platforms. And so Again, you have to be able to stomach the reactions to it, but I'm a long-term holder, so I don't really get concerned with things that Elon Musk may or may not tweet. I still have question marks about whether or not Elon Musk fully understands Bitcoin. Perhaps he does, but I also really wonder because I don't think anyone's done an in-depth interview with him about what the Bitcoin network you know, actually stands for, how it, how it works. Um, and as for the SEC... I don't know if you've watched Gary Gensler's lectures on cryptocurrency, on blockchain, on Bitcoin, but Gary Gensler, who's at the at the helm at the SEC, he really understands Bitcoin. I don't think he's against it. I think that there are political, you know, motives and agendas that may get in the way of faster adoption, but he understands Bitcoin and he also understands that all the other cryptocurrencies are securities. And so I think in the future we're going to see more of a spotlight on Bitcoin as a form of savings and as a as a collateral and as something that should should and will have fair accounting when it comes to institutional adoption. But the other currencies will be deemed securities by his agency. And so I think a lot's going to happen on that front. And again, that volatility from people speaking out, headlines, as more and more adoption happens, as that grows, I think volatility will decrease. But we're still in those early stages. Only about, I think, 140 million uh, people around the world have Bitcoin. Once we reach a billion, I just don't see that volatility, even if Elon Musk tweets something, as being as significant. You've just raised a point there, which is one of my questions, which is, do you see Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies differently? I do. I do. I see Bitcoin as the global dominant monetary network that has the potential to become a global reserve currency, um, become the you know base settlement layer for most financial payments, whereas I see all the other altcoins, tokens, cryptocurrencies as securities very akin to stocks, where you really have to be careful. You have to know the risk that you're taking on. They're usually not decentralized. Um, you're, you might have to worry about who's behind them, who's expanding their supply, who may or may not get fired or you know take a, take a, a buyout early. And, um, and I just, I choose to put my, 
my savings into a place that I consider to be pristine, hard money in a digital form. Um, I'm not against people investing in the space. I believe in free markets, but I basically see Bitcoin as investing in like the infrastructure of the internet versus the other uh, cryptocurrencies as almost investing in different types of websites. Some might do great. You know, they might become a Google, a Facebook, and others like could be pets.com and could be never heard from again, like we had in the dot-com bust. So I see them as very, very different. Something interesting that's coming through is you said you believe in capitalism and free markets, yet the way you were talking about the financial system essentially benefiting the rich and powerful and against the working class and poor sounds almost like socialism or communism. So what is your belief on the right market and what market do you think we're actually in right now? Yeah, so right now I feel like we're seeing the worst of, of governments come into power, authoritarianism, socialism. My family grew up under communism in Eastern Europe. They wanted to flee to the U.S. because they thought it was the land of economic opportunity, the land of the American dream, and the country was founded on capitalistic principles. And I think we've diverged from them because we've married money with power and because we're able to go so far into debt with nothing backing our money anymore, but basically the threat of violence and this so-called promise that we'll pay it back at some point. Um, so I don't think we live in a world of capitalism right now because in the world of capitalism, there aren't these broken incentive structures where people who you know are elected get to hand out easy money or make all these campaign promises and they have lifetime job security. They never get fired, but the, the problems that they oversee get worse and worse and the money gets spent and very few people benefit. So I don't believe that we live in a very capitalistic environment anymore. I would love to see that because personally, I believe that free markets, competition, um, you know, real interest rates, real an economy that's really based on supply and demand on and creating value. That's what creates the most prosperity. And on the base layer of that has to be a money that can't be manipulated by by government officials. So I'm sad to see that we live in a place where, you know, we have People at the top who are the Washington insiders or the political insiders who make decisions and the people they're close with are at the top of the 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 monetary kind of food chain and they benefit. They they're the ones that continue to have power. They continue to purchase more assets that get inflated. The money has to go into basically stocks or real estate because you lose money holding it in a savings account. That's what inflation is. It crushes your purchasing power. But the majority of the working class saves in in that saves, they save their money and they don't have stocks assets and it creates this growing, growing wealth disparity. So I don't believe that that's capitalism. I believe we need to fix that. We need less rent seeking, less politics and, and just political corruption when it comes to money. And that's why we need a form of money that politicians can't control. Do you feel maybe the issue isn't just around the financial system, but it's around education? So, for example, you said that, you know, many of the working class, you know, uh, well, certainly the, the lower working class and the poor people, some, many of them don't have bank accounts. Yep. Um, so that's obviously uh, an issue. Um, many of them use cash to yeah. budget. I'll yes. put $100 in my pocket. And if I've spent it, I've spent it. That's their budgeting. Yes. You could that, say that's a system thing, but could you not also say that's an education thing? Because a hundred you know, percent. Yeah, go on. Yeah. Well, a hundred percent. I think that that's that's why I'm doing what I'm doing because edu education is at the core of this. Education is the only way we're going to spread um, awareness about Bitcoin and also awareness about the what's actually broken in the finance 
financial system and in our in our global economy. And it's really sad that we have a system in which most of our, our schools in many countries, the curriculum is dictated by the government. And so if the government has this Keynesian inflationary policy when it comes to economics. And most people don't even know what, what I mean when I say Keynesian economics. It means that like inflation is good, spending is good, consumerism, debt is okay. Um, I think that people don't realize that there's an alternative or that that very system could actually be causing them a lot of their problems. And so we need education. I think that one of the greatest things about the internet was the democratization of information. They could go on a YouTube page and learn things that you maybe couldn't learn um, unless you went to a specific university in the past or had access to certain you know, books. And so I think in the same way, the internet's also going to democratize our financial system. And, and I look forward to that because um, people need to have this information. It's important for them to make the right decisions because right now a lot of them are voting in people that are creating, you know, bigger problems for them when it comes to just being able to afford life and they don't explain themselves. They just go into a the mode of PR saying that, oh, it's caused by another country. It's caused by this. It's caused by that. Well, no, it's actually caused because you inflated the money supply by 40% and you crushed supply chains with closures. So, you know, these are the types of things that you can have an educated conversation about when you know the material when you know the material and you understand things like economics. Peter Schiff said to me that he thought there was far too many people in government. Government was far too bloated and they needed, you know, much less staff and therefore much less intervention. And he said that, you know, a lot of our taxes going on paying for the salaries of all the people in the government. What are your thoughts on that? So I agree with Peter Schiff so much on everything except Bitcoin. I actually uh, highly recommend his book, The Real Crash. He really spells out some of the issues in government, and he has such a historical knowledge about how our financial system came to be where it is, how all the debt was created, all these government programs that exacerbated the issues that we're facing right now. Um, and I agree with him. We have too much intervention. And as, when I was a reporter, because I used to be a news reporter, I covered these politicians who had ridiculous salaries and and you know they they go to their office every day i don't think that they create anything of economic value or or productive value for society and yet they're walking away with salaries and pensions that are you know higher than what the president of the United States makes, but their local, you know, county or state or uh, city officials. Um, a, a lifeguard here in Los Angeles, where I live, can make 300,000 US dollars a year for sitting on the beach. I mean, it's just, it's just crazy what um, has been allowed when we finance and balloon the budgets of the government. I mean, they can dole out money however they want, and there are no consequences when that money is misspent. The consequences are taxpayers basically are out money, and they're they're being asked to pay more money, while most of them are getting more poor because they're not making enough. Um, so the system is really backwards. And so I agree with Peter Schiff on many things, except for his stance on Bitcoin. Why do you think Peter Schiff hates Bitcoin? Uh, I think part of it is because he he was told about it very early and he didn't get in. So he's a little <laughs> bit, you know, he's a little bit sour on that. I think also it lends to it lends to his brand. It lends to his personality to be the villain against Bitcoin. Uh, and also, I just I don't I really don't think he fully understands it because he's such an advocate for hard money, he's such an advocate for gold. And Bitcoin has so many advantages that gold doesn't. And it creates this idea that we can return to hard money in, in a way that's much more peaceful. <laughs> and so I think he needs to take some time to open his ears a little bit more to Bitcoin. 
Peter Smart, he must understand that, you know, with Bitcoin, there isn't the transactional cost, there isn't the storage cost, there isn't the energy movement costs. You know, imagine transferring a billion of Bitcoin done. Imagine trying to move a billion of gold and how many armed security guards you would need. So, you know, I'm quite neutral with Bitcoin, which I think is why it's good to have a conversation with people like Peter and people like you. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do get the, it does seem to be the best store of energy or at least uh, no destroying of energy when there's transference. That's yeah. what I think Bitcoin really has. Peter Schiff must understand that. Well, and it's also funny because Peter Schiff, I watch a lot of his interviews uh, and he has even said that gold is a very small portion of his portfolio. Um, so, you know, it's it's not like he's sitting there, I think, holding ho- hoarding gold or imagining that we're somehow going to go back on a gold standard, which is completely unrealistic. But I'm going to flip the, the tables on you because I, I know you're saying you're neutral on Bitcoin. Have you read the book, The Bitcoin Standard? No. Okay, you should read it. Yeah, there's, as usual, about 9 million books (laughs) on my I should read list. And you've just added to the stress of it. Um, Well, if there's one book, I'm just telling the whole, and I want to tell your whole audience this, because as someone who I had a 10 year career in a total, in a, in an industry, I had a solid, you know, I had a salary that I could depend on and I kind of risked everything. And I took a different path really because I read that book and it changed my whole life and thinking and led me down the path of gaining more knowledge about our financial system and economics. But it was that one book that made that big of an impression. So I urge your audience, if you're going to read one book about Bitcoin and that's the only book, read the Bitcoin standard and then let us know what you think. <laughs> okay. I have um, read plenty, but I'll, I'll get on that. Um, interesting. You said that, you know, you had a good job and a good salary and you saw it as a big risk. Um, But my um, signature phrase is if you don't risk anything, you risk everything. So let's talk about that, because I have a lot of listeners who see it as a risk to leave a safe job, you know, Mm -hmm. but bearing in mind, they're tied to that mortgage for 20 years. Yeah. That, you know, they've got their savings being eroded in the double digits a year by inflation and everything else. Bear in mind, they could get fired at any time. If the government locked them down, they could have no job. They could get injured, divorced, and all of these things could happen to them. And they could do nothing if they're employed. Yet people see it as a risk to start their own business. What would you say about that? Yeah, I mean, I definitely was there. There's something very stable and comfortable about the idea that you work for an established company, corporation, and you get a predictable salary and you get benefits. And, and you know, a lot of people just stay in that path, even though they're not very happy. But for me, it was – I had spent 10 years as a journalist, and it's so interesting just – how my life has really led me to this point because A, my family immigrated here. I saw them struggle economically, financially. They lost everything in the financial crisis of 08, 09. And I had like a seed planted in my head that something's wrong in the system. Then I embarked on this path as a journalist where I saw more and more problems unfolding. And some of the things that my family experienced just ballooning on, on a level, whether it was small towns, bigger cities, nationally, globally. And when I learned about Bitcoin, it was like this very, um, 
it was like a, a moment of clarity for me that I didn't understand. I didn't know what I didn't know, and I didn't fully understand how our our system worked. And I needed to do more work. I needed to acquire that knowledge. And once I acquired that knowledge, I wanted to help bring more people on because I knew that you could you get tunnel vision in your job and your life. We have personal things going on. We all have crazy schedules. But once someone sparks that like passion, that interest, that form of, you know, knowledge for you, you you can actually be led down a path that has much more prosperity, much more fulfillment, much more happiness. And for me, as I started to do my podcast and educate people about Bitcoin, I came alive. It felt more alive than what I was doing in my normal day-to-day journalism job where I felt like I was kind of, you know, just conveying the facts of very tragic stories because News is rarely good, especially these days. Um, whereas here, I could like actually build and grow something. And yes, it t- it takes risk, but you know, entrepreneurs that's that's what they do. They invest in themselves and in their businesses. They take risk with the hope that it pays off in the future, and they learn from failures and they keep growing. And I'm a huge believer in that. And maybe that's my my immigrant work ethic or or something else. But I think if someone has a passion for something, you'll never know unless you try. If you don't ask, the answer is always no. And you might come alive doing something and learning about something that you know you didn't expect. So I'm a huge advocate for, for risk, especially when it comes to yourself and your career. Do you think we've started to see the death of cash? <laughs> well, look, I mean, cash is still, the US dollar is still great as a medium of exchange right now because it is accepted worldwide and everyone recognizes it and it's still the global reserve currency and it's how you pay your taxes. It's just sad to me that the amount of cash you need to pay for things just, you know, balloons every single year. And Sorry, I, I, just to be specific, I mean, physical cash. Not, oh, yeah. okay. Yeah. Um, well, yes, I, I think that most people transact with their, you know, wallets on their phones and with credit cards and debit cards. And so I, I do think that we're going to live in a world where we don't really have a lot of cash. I rarely transact in cash, paper money anymore. Do you think that's a problem, though? Well, now, let me ask you another question. Do you think our governments want to retract all the cash and want a cashless society? Mm. I think that they do in the sense that central bank digital currencies will allow them to track pretty much every financial move that citizens make and and they can make decisions, you know, based on how people are using or saving their money. Um, But, you know, I I don't think that there's really I don't think that if you ask a random politician, hey, do you care if people use cash? I don't think that, you know, they care on a a micro level, but on that macro level, especially as they they um, establish these central bank run digital currencies. I think that there will be a move to, hey, let's just have everything be digital so we can track everything. And I am I really hope that Bitcoin grows quickly in that world because I do not I'm not a fan of digital of central bank digital currencies. I mean, aren't we all pissed off as it is about social media and our phones tracking us everywhere? Now, if our banks are tracking our behavior everywhere, yeah, is that not a bit Orwellian? I completely agree. I completely agree. I think that's why we need something like Bitcoin, which they won't be able to just manipulate and track and and provide incentive systems of how you spend your money or, or when. I mean, I think people don't realize 
truly um, the the negative uh, potential of CBDCs. And we're already sort of seeing it in China where there could be these really draconian measures of social credit where you could be punished for, for things that you do on a monetary level. So imagine a world where they can literally give you money in your account if you're doing things that they deem positive or good, or they can make it disappear with the click of a button if they're if they don't approve of something you're doing. I mean, that's a really scary world to live in. And I think that that's not far around the corner. But I think that ultimately what will happen is Bitcoin will continue to rise and we will have central bank digital currencies, but people will be using Bitcoin as well. And it will be the main store of value. Is our current banking system a scam? <laughs> I think that it's a Ponzi scheme. I think it's a Ponzi scheme. So I think that's why it's having so much trouble right now, right? Because it needs to constantly be um, inflated and um, and infused with liquidity through the mon monetary printer, which is just debt. They need to infuse it with debt just to keep it going at the pace it's going. And uh, there's a really great book that talks about exactly this, about sort of the debt crisis and where we're going with all this called The Price of Tomorrow, where really at what point does the music stop and who's going to be you know, out of a musical chair at that point? We can't keep the system going. It's why we have these booms and busts. The busts are more and more significant every time. And we keep kicking the can down the road and we really can't forever. Um, so I, yeah, I, I, I think that more and more people need to, to, to stand up to what's happening because now that they've gone so far, it's really hard to wind it back. And we're seeing it. We're seeing it in real time. They're trying to hike interest rates a tiny percentage point and everything is bleeding. Liquidity is excess is withdrawing from every, um, every corner of, of the economy. And it's because we're unless they um, continue a system with artificially low interest rates and continue to finance through debt, we can't pay the debt. We can't service the debt. So uh, we're really in a bad situation for sure. Hmm. Much to think about. One thing that not many people tend to talk about is that if you're an investor and you have gearing, inflation is really good. Yeah. Because the government are paying your debt down for you. <laughs> Well, I mean, that's exactly why we have the the wealth disparity that we do right now. And that's exactly why all of the equities are bleeding so much because they're so dependent on the drug, which is the, monet the, the money printer. And so do you want to live in a world where people's assets are essentially just monetized and it's this like they're not the companies are not based on growth or production. It's literally just a place to put your money because you have to put it somewhere so that you don't risk inflation and, and the crush of your, your purchasing power through inflation. So people have been monetizing their houses and monetizing and weaponizing the stock market. That does not lead to production. That does not lead to wealth, true wealth for the majority of Americans. That does not lead to um, to economic value. That's just we're, we're weaponizing these different monetary assets that most people don't even own. And so, yeah, we're going to have the rich get richer because they own real estate and they own stocks. And you're going to see the poor get poorer. And as this like as that balloons and grows and that wealth divide increases, that wealth concentration increases, you're going to put a downward pressure on the working classes and you're going to spark populism and these movements that, because people are frustrated. They're like, why is my, I can't afford a new house. I, I graduate from college and my, my salary doesn't pay my rent. Uh, you know, I don't, I, I don't have, I'm not a landlord. I can't charge these prices that you guys are charging. I can't afford my rent. I can't afford groceries, my gas. That has a massive 
impact once you start affecting the majority of people in society and you crush the middle class. And that's what I think we're seeing play out right now in real time. So I get you and I see that. And that's why I think it's important the work that you're doing, hopefully the work that I'm doing is to educate people about this stuff. Because just because I think Bill Gates said, if you're born poor, it's not your fault. But if you die poor, it is your fault. And so in that regard, it's very important for the working and the, you know, even the lower poor class of person to not just roll over and blame the government and think you're ruined, but actually to get educated because people can get their own real estate assets. They can buy their own home. They can take money out of savings and put them into other asset classes. So I often think that the rich get richer and the poor get poorer, and not really because of governmental policy as much as just, again, education, because government could change policy, but the rich have got the best lawyers and the best accountants, and they know the most about money, so they'll just relearn what they need to relearn. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I I definitely agree with you. I think education is so key. And because of the internet, I think anyone has access to the information. Um, But, you know, it's it's really hard to diverge from your normal path and from your normal patterns and take that time, especially if you don't, you don't know what you don't know, right? So you hear about Bitcoin and you think it's like, oh, some, some crazy promise of a different economy, but you don't even understand what's wrong with the current economy or you don't appreciate it. So why would you take that step? And so that's what, that's why I'm doing what I'm doing, basically to say, hey, the things that you know aren't exactly as they seem. There, there are different economic theories. There are decisions that are being made by politicians that you may be uh, electing that are actually hurting the the middle class or the working class or hurting your ability to rise in the ranks. And so, education, I think, is totally key to a lot of this. And I, I hope that you know, in, in a way, one of the great things about Bitcoin is it it, it was what sparked my journey to understand all of this. I didn't, I didn't have a catalyst and an impetus before. I just sort of thought that this is the way things work. This is the way they've always worked. And so I didn't see an alternative or a change that was really possible. And I'm grateful that I, I learned from the Bitcoin community about all these issues. Um, so yeah, education is for sure key. And I hope that people take the time to really understand how our financial system and how money works. Do you think there's good enough financial education in schools? No, I don't. I don't. And, and you know, I can really attest to that because I, uh, coming from an immigrant family, education and work ethic was really instilled at a young age. My, my parents came, they had very little and they worked really hard and they said education would be my key to getting out of that type of situation and eventually having financial security. So I was always a really, really good student. And uh, my, my family moved us to a, a suburb that had really good public schools so that I would get the best education possible before I went to college. And then I went to really good private universities and I got my master's degree and I never once in my entire time at these nationally recognized schools got an education on what Austrian economics is, what the money printer is, and whether inflationary monetary policy is actually a good thing. So I do think financial education and literacy is really lacking. Why isn't it taught in schools? 
You know, that's a great question. I think, again, it goes back to the idea that we have socialized education. And so these curriculums have to be approved by the Department of Education. And the Department of Education is guided and led by uh, Keynesian economists and 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 thinkers who just, you know, they are uh, they act in a way that benefits the government or they act in a way that is um, is kind of reinforcing the current system. And so I think when you kind of break away from that and you find alternative uh, points of view, that's when you start to question everything. And that's certainly what what happened with me because I I never learned any of this in school. You said you believe in free markets, but shouldn't there be some kind of intervention? Is there really such a thing as a fully free market? Well, I believe in the rule of law. You know, I believe that you you shouldn't break laws. I do believe in in government enforcing laws. I just don't think that they should intervene and be able to go so far into debt that it just it breaks the incentive systems and creates um, rent seeking opportunities in an economy. I don't think that the government should just have a blank check to do whatever they want with really little to no accountability. Um, so I do believe in free markets and I do believe in the rule of law. I don't think that people should commit crimes and I think that they should be punished for crimes like fraud or, um, you know, but but also, you know, I think in a freer market, a lot of that would be weeded out itself. If a company took advantage of its customers and there was no easy system where they could just get bigger and bigger and balloon into a too big to fail situation, customers would no longer trust that company. It would go out of business. And so, you know, we've really created, again, through easy money, a system where we have these massive too big to fail corporations and banks that also can take, um, you know, too much risk because they'll always be bailed out by the federal government. And so that, again, kind of destroys the the base layer of our economy because it's no longer based on competition. Small businesses can't easily thrive. And you're creating all this red tape for the little guy, whereas the big guy can benefit because they have an easy line of credit to government's easy money. So that system's really broken. And and the, the, the sooner that we can tackle the core of that, I think the better all of our lives will be down the road, especially for future generations. There's been... In the last two years and let's say a half, even less than that, there's been some major interventions by our government or governments, because obviously <laughs> we have US, UK. One would be financing the Ukraine-Russia war. One would be locking us down and spending billions and billions. So probably with a war and a lockdown, we must be hundreds of billions, maybe trillions between the US and the UK and NATO in. What do you think of those kind of interventions and the spending of the taxpayers' money? Yeah, I think it's really ridiculous. I think we're spending far too much money with, again, no no uh, foresight of what that's going to do in the future to prices and to the cost of living and to really the different classes within society. So uh, I think that we need to stop that. But right now there is no, there's no consequence. I mean, you could be a politician that spends a bunch of money, nothing actually good happens and you could get reelected or have job security for life. It's kind of crazy to me. So, uh, so I really think that some of these issues should be addressed. I don't think we should just be spending money. And, and really, honestly, uh, I don't think that we should be meddling in the affairs of a ton of different countries, but unfortunately that's how politics and that's how our system currently works. And until we somehow find our way out of this bleeding debt spiral um, through what I believe is going to be a monetary version of hard money or a digital version of hard money, I don't see a way 
out because we are, we're spending far too much right now in the U S I believe there's $163 trillion of unfunded liabilities, unfunded liabilities. It's just debt and it's debt that we can't pay back. If we wanted to dedicate 10%, we would have to dedicate basically 10% of our economic growth each year to paying off that debt. And it would take us 77 and a half years to pay it off. So the translation is we can never pay it off. The truth is we're already insolvent. We should be restructuring our debts, but the government will never admit to that. That doesn't, that's not politically very, very appealing to get reelected. So what do we do? We just keep going into debt and then all of a sudden the bubble gets too big. So they have to burst it. They're letting the equities bleed out. It's just a cert, like it's getting worse and worse. And every time the as it, the liquidity drains like it is right now, it's more and more painful because the bubble's gotten bigger. And so um, I really, it, it, th those things frustrate me because we can't keep spending money that we don't have, that we can't account for and just kick the can down to future generations because pretty soon we're not going to have future generations. No one's going to want to have kids because they're going to think they can't afford them. So I think that that's what's fundamentally wrong. Yeah, something that's always pissed me off is a government, well, let me put it this way. If a business traded like our government, it would, we could be put in prison for that because trading insolvently is against the law. Yeah. Yet governments seem to be able to trade legally insolvently. Another thing that frustrates me is there's a lot of very smart people in this world. And I was speaking to one of the top politicians in the UK and he said, I don't know what it's like in America, maybe you can tell me, but in the UK, there's a bit of a snobbery of business people and entrepreneurs. So in the UK, there's this sort of Etonian private school clique. And that's how you get into politics, going through that right school. And apparently they very much look down at entrepreneurs and small business owners and business people as somewhat yeah. not the Heron Volk, <laughs> you know, you and there's so many smart entrepreneurs and business owners and billionaires and all these people who know about money who could actually really advise the government and probably help the government put the country into better order. For Why sure. is that not happening? I, I think that's a great question. You know, I mentioned earlier that there are so many efforts underway in my own community and the people who believe in Bitcoin to try to educate policymakers. But some of these circles are so hard to break into. You know, I often ask, like, how did we get into a system where we're so divided into just two parties in the U.S.? It's like you're either red or you're blue and it has to be every issue. And there's nothing in between because you're just going to you have to fall in one of these categories and then you have to fall in line. You can't vote outside of it. And I think that that's crazy. I personally I think that that's crazy and wild. And I don't know why we've become so, you know, sort of homogenous in our in our viewpoints when it comes to certain aspects of the of the world. And we don't allow for other people to come in and open us and guide us down a different path. But, I, you know, I wish I had the answer to that. I think that it's just going to take a little bit more constructive conversation and people willing to make that effort and people taking those risks and taking those chances, knocking on those doors. Because you're right, we can get into a world where people are just in their silos with their communities, with their people and their connections. And it's very nepoti nepotistic and, um, you know, sort of incestual in that way. And, and that doesn't lead to progress for, for, for anyone involved. Um, so it's, it's a good question. It's one I think we should all mull over. So someone could be at this point going, oh, the world is fucked. <laughs> what you've said in many ways is quite scary. Um, so how does an individual hedge against mass 
debasement, if I can use that word, of currency and our, you know, spending power going down and down and down and taxes going up and up and up and all of these issues. How does an individual look after oneself and one's family mm-hmm. and, and actually not just survive, but maybe even thrive? Yeah, well, obviously, as we've seen, you need to find a way to accumulate assets, accumulate scarce assets. Um, And so I know my personal favorite is Bitcoin. Um, And I just I really think that it just it takes some time to educate yourself on all of these issues. But it's really worth it because you're right. If you look at the world around you, if you turn on the news and I was one of the people making those those news headlines before, it, it can be easy to think that the world is going into such a negative place and it's just going to all all things are just going to get worse and worse. But truly, you know, I was sort of there, too. I, I felt a little bit jaded. I felt like even though every politician comes in and makes the promise that it's going to be better under them, which we recently saw as well, it just feels like it gets worse. These problems keep ballooning. There's a reason why they're getting worse. And there's also hope in things like Bitcoin. I'm not saying that everyone has to be all in. I'm not advocating for that at all. But Bitcoin was the thing that when I learned about it, I saw it as the one thing that could usher in a more fair, a more prosperous, a more value-driven world. And so for me, it gave me a lot of hope. And I think that we do need an injection of hope in our world. And so if Bitcoin can play a small part in it, why not look into it? And why not invest a small portion of your portfolio into it? So here's another problem with Bitcoin, is it's not an income-producing asset. Also, it's not one where you can get equity in. So the way I discuss this might be different from the purists because I'm an entrepreneur more than an economist. But the way I see an asset is there's three ways to make money out of it. One is to buy it under value, equity, essentially. Two is capital appreciation. And three is income. And generally with Bitcoin, you buy the price it's worth today. So you can't really get equity because, you, you know, with the property, you can buy a distressed property. And actually today it's worth less because it's distressed. There's a motivated, desperate seller. You can buy a watch cheap. My friend bought 11 million pounds worth of art for 3 million off a distressed seller. So Bitcoin, you buy what the price is today. There's, there's no equity. So it's all capital because there's no income either. So is that not another problem with Bitcoin? And do we not need to produce income to beat this cost of living crisis? Well, I think for some people, the option is going to be or the best path is going to be to diversify through things like real estate or, or different types of assets. But I personally see Bitcoin as that long term savings technology where I want to allocate it because I believe right now we are early. I believe that the price of Bitcoin and its potential in terms of growing as a as an asset and value outweighs any other investment that I could possibly make. Now, if I wanted to also purchase real estate and and put in the work and the capital to make it into a rental property or something, certainly. I mean, everyone's going to have their own uh, risk tolerance, their own uh, you know preferences when it comes to when they want to cash in on, on the assets that they own. But I look at this as probably one of the safest areas to put your money in the long term and as an insurance policy for when the whole fiat debt Ponzi fails. And I do believe it's going to fail. I don't believe that we're going to continue down a path of unsustainable debt. And so I think that you're going to have a situation in the future, my personal belief, where something like stocks and equities completely crash and Bitcoin finally decouples and is uncorrelated because it's not manipulated and not uh, uh, controlled or inflated 
regulated by any third party and has more global adoption than we see today. That's the world that I see in the future as we keep kicking the can down the road. Look, I bet everyone watching this in the next year, but before next year, the money printer will go burr again because something's going to break. There's going to be liquidity crisis. The Fed has to step in and boom, we're going to try to reinflate the bubble again. You can only do this so many times. Each time the Fed loses credibility, people lose faith, the purchasing power of the dollar is wrecked, wealth disparity increases, and eventually it leads to uprisings. I mean, the way that we're going, it doesn't lead to something pleasant and uh, peaceful. So we need something else that's an alternative that is peaceful. That's maybe a parallel system. And that's how I really see Bitcoin. Um, so I see a world where sure you have, you could have these other investments, but in the long run, I believe Bitcoin will probably outpace and out earn a lot of those. Are there any asset classes, legitimate ones that you absolutely wouldn't touch and why? <laughs> uh, treasuries. <laughs> <laughs> I would not be buying government treasuries and securities because I think that they're going to fail. And right now, I think we're seeing really interesting things happen with the bond market, with all these inversions where basically um, people are willing to pay more for uh, for uh, short term rather than long term. And I, I don't know. I just it's just crazy what's happening in the world. So I would not own any treasuries personally. <laughs> what do you think about NFTs? Uh, NFTs are interesting to me in the sense that I do think that more and more artists and more and more companies that um, that are working in the digital space or gaming space are going to deploy them. But I don't see them as a currency. I don't see them as a form of money. I don't see them as a valuable investment. Uh, maybe there will be a couple brands that take off and become, you know, franchises like movies or, or you know, comic books in the sense like Marvel did uh, that that might have some economic value. But for the most part, I think that that ecosystem is far too young. Um, it's really full of scams and things that I, I don't think actually represent any real long term growth or value. So I think I urge people to be careful. To me, it's like kind of going to the going to the casino where you could put some, you know, you could put a hundred on red or whatever and, and it could take off and people flip these NFTs. But at some point, I don't you've also probably heard of the the losses where someone bought an NFT for like hundreds of thousands of dollars and can't sell it for a few dollars. So I would be really careful in the space. I do think it's interesting, uh, the sense of ownership for artists, that they would be able to see a cut for the work that they produce down the road as it's resold or reshared. Um, that's interesting to me. I don't want to live in a world where we're living in fake, you know, metaverse houses and everything's based on like your digital identity, although we might be going there. So, um, you know, well, I'll see how that goes. But I, I think NFTs are, are interesting, but not a form of money, certainly not something that has the potential of, of Bitcoin. As someone who worked in traditional or what you might call mainstream media, how have you seen mainstream media change and then its evolution into social media and how has that developed? So I could talk for an hour on this subject. Uh, I entered into this industry right after the financial crisis and just as uh, digital was really taking over. So when I was young, I really aspired to be a, a news reporter or anchor or a media personality because I saw it as a very noble profession, first of all. I saw it as one that's able to hold uh, government power accountable. And I saw it as one that was also potentially going to allow me to become very financially secure because 
everybody watched television. Everybody watched appointment television. We were a family that consumed a lot of news. We would watch our, you know, Diane Sawyer, the big programs at night. And so the salaries in those those positions, they, they paid very well. They were very lucrative, even in smaller cities. But as digital took over and there was like sort of a flippening of the business model where suddenly you're competing with all these other advertising models and revenues and you have social media and citizen journalism emerging, it really crushed the budgets of a lot of stations. They uh, came together. They became, you know, kind of conglomerates and, and people, uh, one massive network would own a bunch of smaller stations. They would all funnel into a bigger umbrella and they lost a lot of their their individual kind of journalistic prowess and abilities and resources and the and what used to be the job of one person or five people turned into the job of one person. So you used to have like an editor, a photographer, a you know, a producer, writer, and a reporter. And then all of a sudden you're doing the work of one person and getting paid like a fifth of the salary. So I, I witnessed in real time mainstream media changing um, because of digital. And I also think that the rise of social social media and um, sort of the democratization of information also created a new form of sort of competition and an oversaturation of information where you don't know which sources to trust. And all of a sudden we have these sort of um, different political or uh, or biased sources coming up and people are fun funneling into those almost as echo chambers because it makes them feel good. There's like a feeling you get, a rush of endorphins you get from from uh, certain vi um, you know videos or pieces of information online. And so I saw it transform entirely. The thing that makes me most sad and the thing I'll wrap up on is I think that a lot of journalists out there are really well-intentioned. They want to do their job in a good way. They work really hard. It's really hard to be a reporter. The, the job is very, very difficult on a day-to-day -day basis and requires you to become sort of an instant expert on a lot of different topics. But it goes back again to that fundamental core of a lack of financial literacy. And you can't really be the best reporter possible on a, on a lot of these issues or the best anchor possible if you really don't understand our financial system and money, because money's at the core of pretty much every interaction that we have in this world and 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 every every election and every problem that we would report on. There's some, there's some angle that has to do with money. And so I, I just am sad that a lot of mainstream news, the way that they tackle these topics is one that I look at and I say, well, it's because they really don't understand it. The The reporters are not educated. The producers are not educated. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how mainstream media continues to, to uh, evolve, especially in these very polarized times where they're becoming more and more political. And um, I'm glad to be an independent <laughs> content creator now. That doesn't that's I don't have to worry about what a corporation tells me to say or not say. Well, that was something I was going to ask as a lead on, because it seems to me I'm picking up a theme here that you like decentralization. Bitcoin is probably the only decentralized cryptocurrency that I can think of. A lot of them that people say are decentralized aren't. Um, but in a way, social media does create media decentralization. Yeah. Because... Big mainstream media corporates don't have the power. So therefore, there's a bit more accountability. They're losing viewership to kids on YouTube and TikTok and wherever else. Mm -hmm. Is that not quite a good thing in many ways? Well, 
It is. It is because I do believe in competition and I do believe in the democratization of different aspects of our our, our world, um, especially information. But here's the problem with it. And this is what I like about Bitcoin. With Bitcoin, there's such um, there's such an ability to track because it's an immutable record and like you can verify every single transaction and the ownership of it in real time. With social media, you can create a hundred accounts and there's no there's there's no consequence for doing for having malicious behavior. And I see it every single day online. You can basically go online, you can put out information under an anonymous handle, you can attack people, you can put out fake headlines, you can con- confuse people, you can um, proliferate scams, financial scams, and there's literally no consequence. And so that's what I think is the biggest problem that some of these companies have to tackle because so many of them now have monopolies when it comes to, to these, these user engagements and information um, because that that's hurting information. That's hurting the spread of fair information. These companies should not be politically motivated um, and information should be, should be free and accessible to everyone. People shouldn't be shadow banned. Um, so I worry about sort of freedom of speech when it comes to social media, but it's one thing that I like about, about the Bitcoin network and how it was really programmed and designed because you don't have those problems. Ownership can be verified within a couple of seconds. And it is like with every block, every single Bitcoin is accounted for on this ledger. And it's really that system of just like verification and, and fairness and, um, truth. And we don't have that in social media, unfortunately. Hmm. So you think in many ways the government should intervene less, but are you saying they should maybe intervene more and keep big tech social media companies more accountable? Well, you know, I'm, I worry that if they intervene more, that they're just going to make it more political. I think that already some of these websites are, are geared toward um, certain political viewpoints, which I don't like. And at the end of the day, they're private companies with certain types of leaders who may or may not donate to certain types of campaigns. And so I, I just think that um, what needs to be done is these companies should not be able to, um, like, hide certain types of information and and create these algorithms that skew people into uh, a certain viewpoint uh, or hide certain viewpoints. I, th- I saw a lot of censorship happen over the pandemic that was really worrisome to me. And so I don't know what kind of regulations could prevent something like that, but I certainly believe that we should have much, much less censorship. Um, there are some people within the space, including Michael Saylor, that thought that Bitcoin and the Lightning Network protocol could actually help with this because if you could verify your account and there could be um, some sort of monetary deposit that you have to make in order to make certain posts or follow people. If you committed you know, something malicious, if you were trying to scam people, uh, you would actually get money deducted from you. There would be a, a real-time consequence for bad behavior. Um, so that's th- those types of things are sort of interesting to me, but I just really don't think that um, you know, these technocrats should be involved in political conversations and the type of information that people see. Yeah, you're right. We could talk about this for hours. This is one of my favourite subjects, but we'll be here all all day or night. And um, just want to do a couple of closing questions. Just short, mildly silly fun ones. Okay, Um, great. Who's the most eccentric person you've ever met or interviewed when it comes to money? (laughs) Max Kaiser. And why? Um, he just has that personality, you know, like go to his Twitter. He is raging right now. 
<laughs> um, he is just, he's so funny. He's been in Bitcoin for so long and I really love him and his wife. They're really good people and they have really good intentions when it comes to why they believe in this and, and why they want the good guy. They Ultimately, they want the good guy to win. They believe that this is ultimately a battle of good versus evil. Um, fiat being evil and all of this government intervention and corruption um, being evil and Bitcoin representing the return of something good and pure um, and the ability for people to accumulate wealth. So I, I would say that he's the most eccentric, especially, especially on Twitter. <laughs> um, you've been on Fox News a few times with Tucker Carlson. Why do you think he's so hated? Um, I don't know. I didn't think that he was so hated. I think he's one of the top rated shows in the world, actually. I, I think he's the top rated cable news show. Um, I just Maybe think that, that's why he's so hated. <laughs> I, I, I just think that we're so divided and it's so sad because people just decide that they're in this one camp or another and then they decide to hate everything on the other side of it. And I wish that we would come together a little bit more because not everyone falls in line with every single viewpoint in a particular party. I think that a lot of us are more complicated and we all ha can acknowledge we have things to learn in different areas or experience. And um, I think that there's like a saying, I, I forgot what great person said it, but it's like if you have if you just had a conversation with someone across the dinner table with you know in someone who you disagreed with you'd probably be able to come to some form of humanity and and um and be able to see the other per person's point of view but with social media and with us being able to just detach ourselves and just say, Hey, us versus them. It makes that very hard. So I don't know why people hate him. I, I personally think he's actually done a really great benefit to, um, the, his audience into the Bitcoin community by educating himself on Bitcoin and also talking about the problems with money printing, which not all anchors do. As someone who worked in the media, what shocked you the most working as a journalist? Um, what shocked me the most is just how little everyone understands about the financial system. And, and I was one of those people. So that's why I really took the time to educate myself. And I'm trying to encourage my former colleagues to do the same because it shocked me how much we were reporting on things that we fundamentally really didn't understand from a money and financial policy point of view. Have you seen the series Succession? I haven't. Oh, that's a shame. Because it's, it's about someone who owns basically the equivalent of Fox News. Oh, okay. And it, it looks like the main character, you can't say for sure, but it looks like he's sort of modeled on a Rupert Murdoch oh, okay. type character. I just it. wanted to know if it's like real life, but you haven't watched it. So this is now a shit question. You know, I did love the, the show, The Newsroom on HBO. That was great. That was a really good show. And the morning show's okay. It's not super accurate, but it's okay. I think you should watch Succession. It's brilliant. Okay, I will. I think you'll like it. Um, Natalie, where can we follow you? You know, where do you do most of your content um, and social media so we can stay in touch with you and see what you're doing? Sure. So I'm really active on Twitter. My handle is at Nat Brunel. You can visit me on my website, talkingbitcoin.com. I have a podcast called Coin Stories on YouTube and all the other podcasting platforms. And I also do a weekly new show called Hard Money. And you can find that on the Bitcoin Magazine YouTube page. And you just want to spell your username so everyone can, we'll put it in the show notes, but. Yeah, yeah. at Nat Brunel, N-A-T-B-R-U-N-E-L-L. -L. Natalie, this has been a lot of fun. Thank you so much for doing this. Thanks so much for having me.